began to be a disciple in the places where I've served um, takes great risk. I was thinking of a couple of women. Uh, one was in Africa. I happened to be with her when her husband and his family found her. They immediately took her little boy and stormed out. I think if we had not been there, she might have been beaten and possibly even killed. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Disciple Dilemma podcast. I'm Dennis Allen with my co-host, Dr. Raymond Monroe. Our aim at the Disciple Dilemma is to energize Christian leaders. That would be you, to rethink and reform biblical discipleship. We, we think today's discussion will help convince you to come along with us and act on the dilemma. We're going to be talking about three very challenged parts of the world today when it comes to the subject of missions, Asia, Africa, and academics. Our podcast explores discipleship and vocational life in the civic sphere, community life, missions, and ministry. Today's broadcast sees all of those areas coming together. Life as a disciple out there in the field, in ministry, in the academies. Our guests are using pseudonyms, Lynn and Kate, so as not to add any pressure to the field folks where they've served. Lynn is seminary trained. She is a very powerful lady in what she does, and she's a very beautiful person in the way she does it. We've been joyful to have her in our lives personally, my wife Karen and I, for a long time. So Lynn has been a long-term uh, person in the mission world in Asia and Africa. She's been a teacher. She's been involved with WMU. For those of you who don't know what WMU is, that's Women's Missionary Union as a leader before going overseas. She's a PK. Lynn's father was a pastor. She's active today, even though she's retired off the field in English as second language, Bible studies, local ministry, you find Lynn in a lot of places. Her partner in crime today is Kate. Kate has long-term involvement in global work as well, including work in Asia, in minority language development, consulting, training of new and continuing workers, especially in the area of phonetics. Kate has a PhD in linguistics. She's a Santa Barbara grad, U California, Santa Barbara, and has taught in secular and Christian university contexts, as well as in several Asian countries. She is likewise very powerful and we're just privileged to have both of you with us today. So welcome, Lynn. I'll start with you first. Welcome. We're really glad you're with us. Thank you very much. It's a okay. delight to be with you. And Kate, it's just wonderful to have you with us as well. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, Kate and Lynn, right, as you know, you. Jesus commands us after the resurrection that we're supposed to go discipling people. Uh, we normally translate that make disciples, but he says, go discipling all nations. And you've been active in that uh, effort for a lot of your career. Where does discipling start? I read across a quote today that I thought was interesting. Uh, given the contexts where I lived and served, um, it's this. If there is a price to pay, the uncommitted are screened out. And so to begin to be a disciple in the places where I've served um, takes great risk. You have to make a decision that might cost you your freedom. It might cost you your life. I was thinking of a couple of women. Uh, one was in Africa. 
she had decided to follow Christ. She was a young mother. She brought her baby with her to the river, and there among the hippos, she was baptized. And then she immediately left with a Christian friend to hide out from her husband's family. I happened to be with her a couple of weeks later when her husband and his family found her. They immediately took her little boy and stormed out. I think if we had not been there, she might have been beaten and possibly even killed. She knew that she was taking that risk in deciding to follow Christ and to become a disciple. Then in Asia, there was a young woman who served as my housekeeper uh, for about three years. And I kept talking with her about Christ. This was in Thailand, actually. We talked about what it meant to follow Christ. I shared stories about Jesus. She had other Christian friends who also shared with her. Um, finally, one day she came to me and she said, I cannot follow Christ. And I asked her why. And she said, if I do, my husband will divorce me. He'll kick me out and he will keep my son and I cannot give up my son. Hmm. So that's the cost of becoming a disciple. In our world, in, in North America, uh, our Christianity becomes just another organization I've joined. It's just another club that I'm part of. And maybe I've been baptized. So now I have my get out of hell free card. And I don't really have to make any sacrifices. Are the sacrifices that you see when you're involved in other parts of the world, does that set a higher expectation for living the Christian life or following Christ in terms of our, our behavior and loving other people? It's definitely not a group you join. Um, it's definitely a personal decision that you are accepting a great risk in order to follow Christ. Uh, you're right, here in the United States, it very seldom costs us much of anything. Okay, um, just to, to toss the same kind of question to you, uh, where, where do you see, you've got a more academic background, where do you see discipleship starting? What's been your experience in, in discipling people? In well, your... I think it starts with a real clear message of lordship. We aren't just kind of accepting poor little Jesus into our heart and giving him a chance kind of thing. It's like we're coming from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, big transition, big shift, big change in what our priorities are, who we're serving, who we're following, big shift in how we think about all parts of our lives. I think one of the things we really neglected is Jesus doesn't say just go discipling, making disciples. He says to baptize them in the name, which means he's telling us that they're going to have a new identity. They're going to be a new creature in Christ. They're supposed to have died to sin and live a new life. And so how do you think that discipleship dilemma, I think that really goes to the heart of Dennis's book. How do, how do you think we can move forward? And in your experience, what's been effective at getting people beyond just um, making a conversion decision rather than seeing a change in their identity? I think one issue is we're so focused on getting them saved, that we don't present the lordship aspect of discipleship. Um, we try to make it easy to become a Christian and to join the church and to become part of the club. Um, we don't say this is going to cost you. It might cost you uh, some relationships. It might cost you uh, financially as you are going to, in your workplace, stand for Christ. Uh, it might cost you 
in terms of ridicule. Uh, it might cost you uh, in a number of ways. It might cost you family uh, as you follow Christ. We don't present that. We don't arm people uh, against the wiles that they're going to face <laughs> in the, uh, of the devil. I think we need to be upfront and say this is not an easy life that you're being called to. Yeah, I mean, in our culture today, of course, the my greatest value is self-actualization, which really was the original sin. I, I that, learned so much tonight from you guys. I had no idea Abraham Maslow is in the Garden of Eden. Really? <laughs> <laughs> when you look at the, the challenge we face in society today, what we really face is people don't believe life has purpose or meaning. That's why so many young people are taking drugs or playing video games and distracting themselves. And we believe the purpose of life is to stay distracted in good health until we die. And that, that life has no meaning really itself. The thing that um, Kate was talking about, lordship, uh, getting people to recognize that the change of identity that comes from taking on the name of Christ is really the fundamental part of discipleship. In Asia, um, I was actually living with a believer uh, who was a national, uh, and she had a young friend who decided that she wanted to become a believer. She came from a Muslim background, mm. and her village found that she had uh, become a Christian, and they were furious, and they sent a group of men into the city to find her, and to kidnap her and take her back home. They locked her into a room with a chaperone. They spent about 16 to 18 hours a day sending somebody in to just berate her and to try to make her uh, give up her Christianity and come back. When we come back, we'll continue talking with Kate and Lynn, missionaries in Asia, Africa, and the academies. What's it like over there? And we're especially gonna lean in on the guys. Where are we as missionary guys? It's an interesting story. Stay with us. They sent a group of men into the city to find her and to kidnap her and take her back home. They locked her into a room with a chaperone. They spent about 16 to 18 hours a day sending somebody in to just berate her and to try to make her uh, give up her Christianity and come back to the true faith of Islam. Uh, one night her chaperone fell asleep and she crawled out a window and she ran away and she came back to the city and she found my roommate uh, and my roommate brought her to our apartment and we hid her for about a week while local Christians were making plans to find a safe place to move her in another part of the country. This was a teenager and that whole process of having her in our apartment and talking with her about what had happened to her, what it had cost her, it cost her her family. She was never going to see her family again. Was she willing to continue this journey with Christ? Um, how was she going to go about this? And to watch the Christian community come around her and support her and encourage her uh, and take care of her was, was a beautiful I thing. Wanna, I want to ask something of you two, Kate and Lynn. Um, you brought up the subject earlier about the ideas or the concepts of lordship, death to self, taking up cross, counting the cost. Stories you're telling us say, wow, there can be some really 
huge costs. My question to you is in your service in the foreign fields, what's the difference between being a disciple as we think of a disciple here in America and a missionary? What's, what's really the difference? Are all disciples missionaries or all missionaries disciples? What's the difference? It's a good question. Mm-hmm. Let's say we're all disciples and part of being disciples is following Christ ourselves, being conformed to the image of Christ, seeking out how, how can we find out more who Jesus is? What makes him tick? What makes him angry? What delights him? And allowing him to conform us to himself. And as part of that, taking on his interests, his priorities, which is winning, winning his beloved people, his human beings that don't know him, <laughs> back to himself. There are a few strategies that people are using, uh, particularly among unreached peoples. Um, one is called, for short, T for T, which is training for trainers. Uh, a similar one is DMM, uh, which is discipleship making movements. Okay. <laughs> My organization didn't use that one, so I had to go back and check. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that those two approaches have in common is that from the very beginning, a disciple, although they don't use the terminology missionary, a disciple is a discipler. They're both following and they're expected immediately as obedience to Christ to go out and share what they already know with family, with friends, with other people. Uh, And that's part of the whole process from the very beginning. And so there is really no difference so let, let me ask this then when you when you say that the question that comes up in my mind is that's the oughtness of both discipleship and the reason why a disciple would go into a missions framework or a missions venture whether it's domestic or local or international my question is this when you look at the institution of professional missions what do you see that is building people out toward the ought of being a disciple? And what do you see that's kind of, we really need to rethink this. You, you have some examples, I suspect, of ways the organizations have done it very well and the ways they've done it not so well. One thing uh, that has been, has movies made about it uh, are some of the mistakes that missionaries made in the past uh, where they forgot that the point was to make Christ followers and instead thought that the point was to create a new culture that mirrored their own culture. One of the movies, of course, was um, the missions movement that started in Hawaii. And that's where they made the Hawaiian ladies start wearing clothes and things like that, you know, because that was what was important. Another example that comes to mind is the country of Taiwan, I know that more than 100 years of Baptist missions has been there. And what they did there was to create an even further than we go society within the church, where in order to become a pastor of a church, you first of all had to pass the age of 30. You had to have a seminary education. You had to have a minimum of five years mentorship under a head pastor and a lot of other rules and regulations. And the whole idea of becoming a pastor meant modeling what they had seen among the missionaries that had come. Mm -hmm. 
and planted churches in the first place. How challenging has it been for you in terms of trying to spread the gospel when you're in a culture that's not already Christianized? First, let me uh, just mention uh, another example. Um, in Malaysia, and here I'm not talking about missionaries, but I'm talking about the churches and the Christians that are already there and the, the pastors. Uh, in Malaysia, the law is that it is okay to share the gospel so long as it is not with the Malay. If a person is an immigrant, if they are Chinese background or another background, you are free to share the gospel as much as you want. You can baptize them. They can become members of your churches. But if it's a Malay person, they are to be Malay is to be Muslim. And you cannot share the gospel. And if you share the gospel with a Malay, then you will be thrown in prison. What's the balance between men and women? And is there a, a real deficiency? I mean, are there more women involved in missions work than men? Are there more men? What's the What's the balance and is there an imbalance that we need to at least understand from discipling all nations? Yeah, you don't have to be in, the, in this context very long to see that there's a lot of married couples and there's a lot of single women and kind of ra random single men here and there. But yeah, this is one, one thing that is quite noticeable and that I think we'd have a hard time um, saying it's, it's by God's intention because we don't see the difference in who, who's called into missions. We don't see the difference in who is called to singleness. We don't see any gender differences in a lot of these things. And so I don't think we can say that God is behind it, but I think we do need to ask the question of what's happening. So some numbers that I, so in the late 90s, I was working, I did uh, I contacted seven organizations representing about 15,000 career active members, but they all showed underrepresentation of men in that sample. There was a short shortfall of almost 1,300 men. So that's a lot of people that didn't hear the gospel. That's a lot of, a lot of implications for these kinds of numbers, just in these seven organizations. The five non-denominational ones, 16% were single. That was 12, over 1,200 women and about 200 men. Wow. So that's different than the way that, you know, that doesn't match birth rates. The birth rates come from the mind of God. Um, there's a Why lot six to one? Why six it's to one? Six, six to one. And <laughs> looking at the data, and that's from one large agency, I also found that if you look at these ratios a little bit more, they're more skewed in overseas assignments. The six to one was, was just career active members. Wow. Overseas, these ratios are more skewed. You. Uh, go to overseas field assignments, not at centers, not administrative support kinds of uh, communities, um, but to field assignments out in minority areas, then it was even more skewed. So to pastors and leaders and parents of men is discipleship. Disciple the men, challenge them, challenge them to be part of God's, God's big work in his universe and send them out with your blessing, with your encouragement, with your support, Encourage them. This is this is worthy. I did. Kate and Lynn, you two were in. You two were not in vacation spots in your no. work. Mm -hmm. No, <laughs> no. And the guys weren't there. The guys just basically a single men. They, they just, weren't there. Yeah, yeah. So so the the rare guy that is there, I've had single guys tell me 
I didn't have a buddy in this whole huge group entity, this whole huge group where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And there was <laughs> no single guys where they have problems finding roommates for women. I mean, we can talk to other women. We can. Um, and it's hard to say that God is behind it. That's the thing that I want to stress. It's hard to say that God is behind it. Scripturally, you won't find it. You'll see a lot of clues that say God is not behind it. So Surely you're going to give me some kind of an out here for the guys. You're going to help me so that the guys get <laughs> off without too much pain. You're right. Like, tell me, tell me, you're in an area where men were not allowed to go and only women could go there. 